Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 143, The Secret Tunnels of Boston's North End. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm talking about the so-called secret pirate tunnels, or smugglers' tunnels, that are supposedly hidden under the streets of Boston's North End. If you've ever taken a walking tour of the North End, or if you've talked to the old-timers in the neighborhood, you've probably heard stories about a network of secret tunnels that connected the wharves to the basements of houses, Old North Church, and even the crypts in Copse Hill Burying Ground. Sometimes the tunnels are attributed to a Captain Grouchy, who's often called a pirate or a smuggler, and who's portrayed as a shadowy figure. It doesn't take much research to debunk this version of the story, and yet there is historical evidence for tunnels under the streets of the North End. This week, we'll take a look at that evidence and try to separate fact from fiction. But before we talk about the truth and legends of the pirate tunnels, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is a little volume of North End history that we originally picked up back when Nikki and I were tour guides. When Nikki was putting together our tour of the North End, she found a book called The North End, A Brief History of Boston's Oldest Neighborhood by Alex R. Goldfield. I didn't realize until I read the author's bio today that he's also a Boston tour guide, which probably helps explain why his perspective was so helpful when we researched a tour. Here's how the publisher describes it. Before evolving into a thriving Little Italy, Boston's North End saw a tangled parade of military, religious, and cultural change. Home to prominent historical figures such as Paul Revere, this neighborhood also played host to Samuel Adams and the North End Caucus, which masterminded the infamous Boston Tea Party, as well as the city's first African-American church. From the Boston Massacre to Revere's heroic ride, the North End embodies almost four centuries of strife and celebration international influence, and true American spirit. A small but storied stretch of land, the North End remains the oldest neighborhood in one of the country's most historic cities. We'll have a link to purchase the book in this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 143. And for our upcoming event this week, I guess we're going to continue with the tour guide theme. This time we're featuring a walking tour of Boston's women's history from author Jen Diederich. Diederich is the author of a new graphic work called She the People, which we know has been in the work for many years because she discussed the challenging research process at History Camp Boston back in 2015. Now she's out with a book subtitled A Graphic History of Uprisings, Breakdowns, Setbacks, Revolts, and Enduring Hope on the Unfinished Road to Women's Equality. The She the People walking tour brings that history home to Boston. Here's how the author describes it. With stops at places referred to in my book, She the People, or related to people I discuss, this walking tour gives a sense of the layers of women's history in Boston, from before 1776 to now. We start at the first public reading of the Declaration of Independence in Boston, and end with one of our great contributions to 2018's woman-led blue wave. The last in our series of tours is coming up on August 7th at 9 a.m., The tour will cover about three miles and two hours, with opportunities for rest and bathroom breaks. Let your guide know if you require any accommodations to make the tour accessible. Advanced registration is $15, or for just $30, you can get a signed copy of the book along with your tour. We'll have a link to the event page in the show notes this week at hubhistory.com slash 143. Before we move on with the show, I want to say thank you again to Liberty & Co., 
who are back as this week's sponsor. Liberty & Co. sells unique items inspired by the American Revolution, many with themes tied to the historical events, locations, and people of Boston's past. They have a Green Dragon Tavern mug, t-shirts for Paul Revere's Bell Foundry and the Boston Massacre, and designs for the law practice of John Adams available as t-shirts, stickers, and magnets. Another unique product that Liberty & Co. offers is an exclusive Candles of the Revolution series. Experts say that the sense of smell is closely tied to memory, so imagine remembering the Boston Tea Party through a candle that smells just like black tea. Or put yourself in Abigail Adams' garden with a Peacefield candle that has a blooming wisteria scent. You can get 20% off your order and help support the show when you shop at libertyand.co and use discount code HUBHISTORY at checkout. That's L-I-B-E-R-T-Y-A-N-D dot C-O and use the discount code HUBHISTORY. And now it's time for this week's main topic. For as long as I can remember, there have been rumors about secret tunnels under the streets of the North End that were used by smugglers or pirates. Many of these stories also incorporate the four statues of cherubs that sit above the organ at Old North Church, saying that the privateer captain Thomas Grushy smuggled the men through the secret underground tunnels. It's a story that I've heard in anecdotes and on walking tours, and it's even one that I've repeated back in my tour guide days. Word about the secret tunnels must be spreading because about a year ago, we got an email from a listener named Dan who was going to be visiting Boston. He wanted to know where he could find a detailed map of Grouchy's secret tunnels in the North End, whether tourists were allowed in the tunnels, and if so, where he could find a guided tour. Now, this is a story that's so lost in the mists of time that I thought it was purely a myth or an urban legend. There are certainly many tall tales about the North End tunnels in popular consciousness. Back in 1927, horror fiction writer H.P. Lovecraft incorporated a version of the legend into a story set in the North End called Pickman's Model. Here's the relevant passage. I'll wager my four times great-grandmother could have told you things. They hanged her on Gallows Hill with Cotton Mather looking sanctimoniously on. Mather was afraid somebody might succeed in kicking free of this accursed cage of monotony. I wish someone had laid a spell on him or sucked his blood in the night. I can show you a house he lived in. I can show you another one he was afraid to enter in spite of all his fine, bold talk. He knew things he didn't dare put into that stupid magnolia, or that puerile wonders of the invisible world. Look here. Do you know that the whole North End once had a set of tunnels that kept certain people in touch with each other's houses and the burying ground and the sea? Let them prosecute and persecute above ground. Things went on every day that they couldn't reach, and voices laughed at night that they couldn't place. Why, man, out of ten surviving houses built before 1700 and not moved since, I'll wager that in eight I can show you something queer in the cellar. There's hardly a month that you don't read of workmen finding bricked-up arches and wells leading nowhere in this or that old place as it comes down. You could see one near Henchman Street from the Elevated last year. There were witches and what their spells summoned, pirates and what they brought in from the sea, smugglers, privateers, and I tell you, people knew how to live and how to enlarge the bounds of life in the old times. This wasn't the only world a bold and wise man could know. Back in 1896, during the frenzy of construction that led up to the opening of Boston's first subway, the Boston Globe reflected on the presence of tunnels in the North End. Long before the present subway commission was thought of, and before the crush of horse and electric cars made the city streets so dangerous for pedestrians that it became a necessity to put them underground, Someone found it for his interest to build a subway in the heart of what was then the center of the city. 
Why it was built or when is a mystery, but that it exists, many at the North End know. In more recent times, the story takes a slightly different form. People claim to have spoken to an old-timer in the North End, and they, or maybe their parents or some other older acquaintance, once saw the tunnels themselves. An article by Guild Nichols follows this pattern, in which he claims to have interviewed the elderly resident of a Salem Street house where one of the tunnels terminated. Did anyone ever go into this tunnel, I asked. Well, yes. That's what I've been told, Sonny said. Before my grandfather had it bricked up, they did go in. They even found an old rusted sword inside. Somebody wanted to buy it, so it was sold. Probably for a pittance at the time. A shame. But this tunnel was part of a network of tunnels. One ran over to the cryptid Old North, and one went off under the Copse Hill burying ground. The main tunnel continued up Salem Street under Charter and then down to Grushy's Wharf along the harbor. The idea that there's a whole network of secret tunnels has been put forth by many modern publications, including Spare Change News, which talked about the tunnels in 2015. That article mostly focused on a possible tunnel on Commercial Street, then closed with this speculation. That might explain the Commercial Street tunnel, but what are the others? A writer in 1817 mentioned a tunnel under a house on Lynn Street, and the AIA Guide to Boston claims that the cellar of a historic house on Salem Street has a bricked-up archway in the cellar. The archway is said to lead into a tunnel that goes to Copps Hill Burying Ground. Because some of the more outlandish claims about the tunnels were clearly false, I had long dismissed the whole concept as an urban legend. Dan's email, however, prompted me to do some research, and there's at least a kernel of truth to the stories. In today's episode, I'll try to track down who built the North End Tunnels, what they were for, and where the secret tunnels are. That article in Spare Change News mentions historical records of a tunnel dating back to 1817, and it points to three possible locations for the secret tunnels, on Lynn Street, Commercial Street, and Salem Street. In the 1817 book, A Topographical and Historical Description of Boston, historian Charles Shaw includes the earliest description of the tunnels I know about. There has been noted an arch of more than common dimensions in Lynn Street, on the north side communicating with a cellar which was under a house demolished in the year 1775 to 1776 while the British troops were in possession of the town. On the side next to Charles River, it was on a level with the wharf, which had formerly ran into the river. The arch had the same width as the house and was continued under the street to a cellar wall of the building on the southern side of the street. In 1873, historian Samuel Adams Drake wrote about the tunnels in his book Old Landmarks and Historic Personages of Boston. He mentions the Lynn Street Tunnel and pinpoints it at the corner with the delightfully named Henchman Lane. At the foot of Henchman's Lane, when the work of excavation was proceeding at this point, there was uncovered an arch built of brick, of large dimensions, with an opening at the waterside. There was originally a high bank at this place, the arch spanning the then Lynn Street and communicating with the cellar of a house on the north side. About 40 years ago, when digging for the foundation of the houses on the east side of the street, the remains of the arch were found, and are still to be seen in the cellar of the house opposite Hinchman's Lane. Those sources focus on Lynn Street, but a chapter called An Ancient Tunnel, in Edward Porter's 1887 book Rambles in Old Boston, goes a different route. It examines a tunnel that could be seen on Commercial Street. On the water side of Commercial Street, leading from the cellar of the house number 453, is a singular and somewhat mysterious arch about which there is yet abundant room for speculation. 
It rises from a stone springing and is built of large imported brick laid in the English bond. It is about five feet high and fourteen feet wide. The bottom level, like some of the streets in Rome, has evidently been raised by the gradual accumulation of rubbish and by its long use as a receptacle for wood and coal. The line of the tunnel is not at right angles with the house, but bears off in the direction of Salem Street. When Commercial Street was widened some years ago, the workmen found this extraordinary subterranean passage extending across the street, and blocked it all up except the end given in the picture. In the mid-20th century, historian of the Boston Harbor Islands Edward Rowe Snow made a lot of claims about the North End Tunnels. One time, I think in the 1970s, he was photographed in the basement of a house on Salem Street, resting a hand meaningfully on a brick arch in the cellar wall. That same arch is visible in a 1930 photo taken by Leon Abdalian, which has a caption giving the location as 190 Salem Street. So we have three possible locations, on Salem Street, under Lynn Street, and crossing Commercial Street. Looking at a map of the North End shows that the location on Commercial Street is along the waterfront by the Coast Guard Station, while Salem Street is slightly up Cops Hill by Old North Church, and Lynn Street is further west, almost a Haymarket. However, the 1722 Bonner map of Boston shows that what we now know as Commercial Street was once called Lynn Street. Add to that Porter's description that the tunnel under Commercial Street angled towards Salem Street, and we can conclude that all these different descriptions of tunnels in three potential locations probably all refer to the same one. It started under Commercial Street, angled south and west as it passed under Charter Street, and possibly connected with the cellar on Salem Street. Altogether, it's a distance of perhaps 300 feet. With the mystery of where the North End Tunnels were solved, we turn to the questions of who built them and what they were for. The earliest account of the tunnels from Shaw in 1817 attributes their construction to a merchant named Cheever. In examining the ruins of that part of the town, I accidentally went into it, and being struck with its unusual situation and size, I made inquiry of an aged friend respecting it. He informed me that he had long known of the arch, that the estate had formerly belonged to a merchant named Cheever, who was a ruling elder at one of the churches in the North End, who had been suspected of having concern in the smuggling trade, and that this arch, communicating so directly with his wharf, was supposed to have been very convenient for that purpose. When constructed, he could not tell. The Cheever that Shaw's aged friend referred to is almost certainly William Cheever who was originally from Monotomy and graduated from Harvard in 1771. His father, William Downs Cheever, had been a merchant in the North End, with a large house at the corner of Hanover and Blackstone Streets, basically where the Haymarket is now. The younger William participated in his father's business in Boston for years before eventually being sent to Amsterdam to manage that end of the company. When he returned to Boston in 1784, he bought a house at the corner of Battery and Commercial Streets. The elder Cheever's business was too far inland to benefit from a smuggler's tunnel, and the younger Cheever's house was about three blocks away from the tunnel's mouth. Plus, young William moved back to Boston after the Revolution, when there was no longer a need to smuggle goods into Boston to avoid paying duties to the Crown. Popular legend attributes the North End Tunnels to another source. Writing about the tunnel in 1873, historian Samuel Adams Drake said, Time has disclosed that it was built by a Captain Grouchy during the French Wars and used as a place of deposit for captured goods. Perhaps the captain was a free trader or fitted out privateers to prey upon the commerce of the French king. 
Grouchy was a subsequent owner of Sir William Phipps' house and his land running down the hill to the water's edge. He built him a wharf of two captured vessels, which he sunk for the purpose. These old arches were a unique feature of Old Boston, and doubtless began to be built at the time Randolph made the attempt to collect the king's excise. Another is noted built by Edward Hutchinson from his house on North Street. In an 1881 children's book, Drake adds, The mouth of the arch, which was large enough for boats to enter, was concealed by a wharf running out into the river, and so the king was cheated of his share. Drake wrote both adventure stories for young readers and volumes that he considered serious history, but I've often found that when he had to choose between accuracy and a good yarn, his desire for narrative often won. With that in mind, it's perhaps a good idea to cross-reference his account with one from Porter in 1887. A Jersey adventurer cruises along the Spanish main and captures valuable prizes, which he brings to Boston and sells to great advantage. Becoming rich, he concludes to make this his home, and buys of John Ruck in 1745 the famous mansion of Sir William Phipps, with its fine equipment of ballroom, guest chambers, servants' hall, coach house, stables, gardens, terraces, and shade trees. Having set up such an establishment, he has no difficulty in finding friends. His entertainments are gay and costly. He becomes one of the great men of the town, a benefactor of Christchurch, a tithing man, a fire ward, a chairman of committees, and a subscriber to public improvements. He owns wharves at the foot of the hill. He buys Butler's Warehouse and Dumeresque's Great Distillery, extending his possessions along the shore by the old ferryway so that Grouchy's Flats are still remembered as a once-familiar name for that section. But all this glory comes to an untimely end. Whether his ships cease to come in, whether ill-gotten gain becomes a snare, whether the secret treasure vault gives out or is discovered, no one knows, but his light is extinguished. He does not die. He makes no will. He leaves no children. He simply disappears from the scene. And his riches, like the old hulks at his wharf, are sunk out of sight. The stately mansion with all his equipage is sold for the creditors, and the name of Grouchy appears no more in the Boston Annals. Porter's account hews closer to the truth. Thomas Grouchy was a sea captain who originally hailed from Jersey. Old Jersey, that is, the Channel Island off the coast of England. He was the son of a ship's rigger, and he went to sea at a young age. By the time he moved to the town of Boston in 1741, he was a fairly well-to-do mariner, and he purchased a box pew at Christchurch, which we know as Old North Church, soon after arriving. A few years later, as you might remember from our show about the siege of Louisbourg, a new war broke out between England and France in 1744. Unlike many later colonial wars, King George's War was fought mostly on the North American continent and was fought mostly by the colonists themselves. On land, that meant that a Massachusetts militia would attack the strongest French fortress in North America in 1745. And at sea, it meant a heavy reliance on privateers to harass the enemy's shipping. Privateers were, as the name implies, privately owned vessels that were fitted out for war and issued a letter of mark from their government authorizing them to attack vessels belonging to an enemy country. The privateer crew and owners, often investors, would keep the captured vessels and cargo, splitting up the proceeds amongst themselves. In January of 1744, Captain Grouchy, two church wardens, and three other members of Christchurch all pooled their money to purchase a ship called the Queen of Hungary. With Grouchy in command, their privateering was very profitable. 
They made a number of captures before the end of 1744, making Grouchy and the other investors reasonably wealthy. With his share of the money, Grouchy bought a mansion at the corner of Salem and Charter Streets that had once belonged to Governor Sir William Phipps. As you may recall from our show about the legend of the governor's gold, Phipps himself had amassed an enormous fortune by discovering a sunken Spanish treasure galleon and recovering the treasure. Now, Grouchy could use the proceeds from his career attacking Spanish and French ships to move into the same mansion. After another successful cruise the following year, Grouchy and his investors wanted to make a significant gift to their church. A 2016 article on the Old North Church blog quotes from the Vestry Records of 1746. Whereas, Mr. Robert Jenkins, Captain Grouchy, Mr. Hugh McDaniel, Mr. John Gould, and Mr. John Baker, owners of the privateer Queen of Hungary, hath made a present to Christ Church in Boston of four cherubims and two glass branches taken by the said vessel, voted that the branches be hung in the body of the church and the cherubims be placed on top of the organ. So those cherubs in Old North Church were captured by a privateer from a ship bound for French Canada. But they were not a pirate's booty, they were not smuggled into Boston, and they had nothing to do with the North End Tunnels. The two topics get conflated because not long after Grouchy bought the Phipps Mansion, he also bought a distillery and some land around the corner of Henchman Street and Lynn Street, which is right where the tunnels would eventually be discovered. The Old North blog describes how he was using this parcel to try to make his living on land. Here, he practiced distilling molasses into rum. Grouchy applied for a retailer's license and was awarded it. As he attempted to increase his fortune, he was actually building debts. Grouchy's sudden disappearance wasn't because he ran out of secret treasure hidden in a secret tunnel. It was because he was deeply in debt and had no way to pay off his creditors. Over the course of 1758, he sold his house and most of his assets. Then, in 1759, he disappeared, possibly getting passage on the Halifax-bound ship Susanna on January 3, 1759. The Old North blog continues, By June 6, 1759, a vestry meeting of Christchurch voted, The pew number 25, lately belonging to Captain Thomas James Grouchy and purchased by the warden for the church, be conveyed over to Captain Daniel Malcolm and a title given him for it, he repaying the warden eight pounds lawful money which he gave for it. It appears that Captain Grouchy disappeared from Boston at this time. His name doesn't appear in any church records from that date on, with the exception of mentions of his earlier gifts to the church. While Grouchy's name is closely associated with the tunnels in Boston's popular imagination, there's actually very little evidence tying him to them. Two retired custodians from the Holbrook Public School System believe that they have uncovered the tunnel's true origin. Inspired by a 1968 radio program where Edward Rowe Snow was talking about the North End Tunnels, Richard Dean vowed to get to the bottom of the story. After over four years of research, he was able to find documentary evidence revealing that the tunnel was built in 1669. He then collaborated with Frederick Paguri, a former colleague in the Holbrook Schools, to produce a 160-page manuscript about the project, which, as far as I can tell, remains unpublished. I reached out to Richard Dean for this episode, but didn't hear back. Instead, I filled in the details from interviews he's given in the local press. For example, here's what the Brockton Enterprise said in 2011. Richard Dean didn't just dig underground. As he followed a paper trail all the way back to the 17th century, he discovered that the tunnel was built more than 70 years earlier than Snow thought. Along with a friend, Frederick Paguri, 
Dean has written a book about his search for the tunnel. They hope to find a publisher for the 160-page manuscript. The tunnel, which is now below the Coast Guard station on Commercial Street, was built by Captain Daniel Hinchman, a veteran of King Philip's War and a brewer of beer. The tunnel made it easier to transport the beer from Hinchman's cellar to ships tied up nearby. You just cart it through the tunnel to the waiting ship, Dean explained. Dean found a reference to the tunnel, quote, that arch under the highway or street, unquote, in a 1714 deed. Of course, after that, we can only speculate what it could be used for, he said. Dean and Bagheri's research indicates that far from being a pirate secret lair, the tunnel was originally used for transporting and perhaps lagering beer. If that's the case, it fits with a comment made by Porter in 1887. It should be said that other arches, not unlike this though smaller, have been known at the North End, and some can still be pointed out, but they are generally supposed to have been wine vaults or milk cellars. So perhaps Captain Henchman built an arch similar to other residents' wine cellars, but on a large scale to account for his beer brewing business. Early accounts say the tunnels were as wide as the house they were under, and accounts from 1896 and 1906 describe the remaining tunnels as being 5 feet high and 14 feet wide. Given the size and complexity of the construction, it would have been almost impossible to complete in secret. Even way back in 1817, Shaw commented that the tunnel could not have been completed in secret. It has been conjectured that it was designed for a retreat for certain pirates who are said to have infested this coast. When constructed, the whole street must have been laid open, so that it is not probable its first design could have been for that purpose. If Henchman was the first to develop this little corner of Boston, it makes sense that he was able to lay open the entire street. In fact, the street was probably laid down after the tunnel was in place. As Drake noted in 1873, the lane was named after the captain, who was responsible for laying out the street. Before it was built into a thoroughfare, Lynn Street was only a narrow way around the beach. Henchman's Lane is co-equal with Lynn Street in receiving its name, which was from Captain Daniel Henchman, father of the bookseller, who lived within its precincts. So now that we know where the tunnels were, who built them, and what they were used for, where does that leave Dan, who wondered if he could get a tour of Captain Grouchy's smuggling tunnels? If he'd been around a few years ago, he might have had a fighting chance. A story in the Boston Globe in 1896 tells one person's experience exploring the tunnel back in the 1870s. Andrew Hines, who has lived on Commercial Street for over 40 years, and for half that time in number 452, went into it some 20 years ago. His curiosity was excited by the tales of some of the older residents of the neighborhood, and he determined to see for himself where the passage led to. Fixing himself a miner's lamp on his hat, he started in, not, as he admits, without some fear. He found no difficulty in getting along. After crossing Commercial Street, he was obliged to stoop a little, as the water had carried the sand from above and raised the original bottom. He found the brickwork as clean as the day it was laid along the sides and top. He continued his explorations until he reached, as well as he could judge, a point under Charter Street. Seeing no end to the subway in sight, and the light of his lamp beginning to grow dim, he abandoned his search and returned. Since then, the size of the tunnel has been reduced time and time again. In that same 1896 article, the Globe mentions how little of the tunnel remained. When Commercial Street was widened some years ago, the mysterious passage was discovered, 
but the workmen neglected to investigate it and filled up the passage almost to the north side of Commercial Street. A space about 15 feet long opening into the cellar of 452 Commercial Street remains opened. A decade later, even this small 15-foot-long section of tunnel was blocked off. The LA Herald picked up a story describing a brief period when the remaining section was visible, but soon to be walled off forever. The house that was formerly known as number 453 Commercial Street, Boston, was demolished recently, and upon its site is the front sidewalk of a large brick building that is now in the process of construction. Beneath this sidewalk, and in what was formerly the cellar of the premises at number 453, is the water end of what was a real smuggler's tunnel. A simple and unconventional mortar bed now covers the portal of this mystery of nearly two centuries, and very likely it will be many years before the smuggler's tunnel will again come to light. They were right, and it was in fact many years before the so-called smuggler's tunnel came to light again. In 1972, Holbrook custodian Richard Dean wasn't just digging through the archives looking for old deeds. He was also trying to get permission to dig up the street and search of the tunnel itself. Finally, after months of inquiries to practically every city department, he was given a two-day window when he would be allowed to dig up the street. He says that he dug about four or five feet down by hand before hitting the tunnel. In an interview, he said, Much of it is still there. A lot of it has been broken through. The cover of his unpublished book shows him in a hard hat inside a small chain-link enclosure. He's emerging from a hole in the ground with a pickaxe in his hands and a triumphant grin on his face. For the rest of us, including Dan, imagination will have to suffice. To learn more about the secret tunnels in the North End, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 143. We'll have links to the books by Shaw, Porter, and Drake that I quoted from, and we'll link to historical articles from the Boston Globe and the LA Herald. We'll have a link to the 1722 Bonner map of Boston so you can see how the different accounts fit together and point to a single tunnel. We'll have links to more information about Captain Thomas Grouchy, as well as interviews with Richard Dean about his research pointing at Captain Daniel Henchman. Plus, we'll have historical sketches of the tunnel from before it was filled in, and the famous 1930 photo of the bricked-up arch under 190 Salem Street. And, of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and The North End, a brief history of Boston's oldest neighborhood, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we'd love to play your message on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or just go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. Or just tell a friend about us. That's all for now. We'll be back next time to talk about the 1910 Harvard-Boston Arrow Meet. <laughs>